Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. These days, it's quite rare for me to read a book before reaching out to an author for an interview. It's simply the case that I have to schedule interviews well in advance of my own reading schedule. And publishers are reaching out constantly about interviews before I've properly read the books they'd like me to take on. Laura Sims' most recent novel, How Can I Help You?, is a book that fell into my lap by chance and proceeded to paralyze me for several days. When I finished, I felt as though I had awakened from a wonderfully terrible dream, and I knew that I would have to contact Laura for an interview. How Can I Help You operates with two competing narrative perspectives, Margot and Patricia, each diabolically mysterious in her own way. Margot appears to her colleagues to be the perfect library employee, orderly, responsible, and great at subduing the rowdier patrons who make the library's business louder and more chaotic. Her life before the library as a nurse with a different name and a habit of having many patients die under her care is starting to bleed into her new job. This seepage of a mysterious past does not go unnoticed. Patricia, a recently hired reference librarian and would-be novelist, although she protests she is finished with that part of her her life, begins forgoing her library duties in favor of character notes that describe the odd behavior and personal life details of her colleague Margot. A death at the library furthers this obsessive link between the two, and their lives become more and more entwined. As secrets are unveiled and each character's worst flaws and behaviors come to the fore, the novel spins with tension and mystery. What precisely is Margot running from? And why is Patricia cutting off everything and everyone in her life in favor of a writing project with Margot as protagonist? Laura Sims brings this slow-burned literary mystery to a full roiling boil with a dexterity that makes library workplace drama fodder for obsessive reading. We're flung from Margot to Patricia and back again as what seems like an inevitably violent climax dodges our expectations and asks us to reconsider our allegiances and so-called moral red lines. One of the most exciting, fun, and thought-provoking novels of the year, How Can I Help You, will be the novel you most gift this holiday season. How Can I Help You is a Library Reads Top 10 Pick of July, an Amazon Editor's Pick of the Month, 
a publisher's weekly pick of the week, and one of Crime Read's 10 best books of July. Laura Sims' first novel, Looker, was chosen as a best book by Vogue, People, Entertainment Weekly, Esquire UK, and more, and is now in development for television by E1 and Emily Mortimer's King Bee Productions. An award-winning poet, Sims has published four poetry collections. Her essays and poems have appeared in The New Republic, Boston Review, Conjunctions, and Electric Lit. She and her family live in New Jersey, where she works part-time as a reference librarian and hosts the library's lecture series. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you, Chris. That is uh, That was a beautiful intro. Thank you so much for that. Well, I, I mean it when I said that uh, I read this and, and was dying to talk to you. So <laughs> thank you for coming on the, the show. It's um, a pleasure. I want to start with the genesis of this library horror story. You, you happen to work part-time as a reference librarian, and I wonder if your experiences in that position inspired this story and how the structure of your day there and your sense of the library as a place came into the novel. Yes, my work absolutely inspired this book in many ways. I started working in 2018 as a librarian part-time, but it wasn't until 2020 during the pandemic that I started working more often. And I really got to, I mean, it was a strange time because not everyone was coming in, but we did have many people coming in because it was the only place for them to go. And so I did get a chance to really soak up the atmosphere of the library at that time and come to understand what a fascinating and rich, diverse environment it is where you can kind of see the whole spectrum of human behavior on display. So it was definitely inspirational. I started I started taking notes, not so much like Patricia does in my novel, where she's actually writing a novel at work, or, you know, she's taking notes towards something like that. But I was just jotting down the experiences I had with patrons as they happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, I want to write about the library. And I didn't know at the time if it would be a novel or not, but I just, I wanted to capture it. It's such a fascinating and important place. It's, you know, one of the last institutions that welcomes everybody through the door. And I I feel like we don't see that image of the library very often in literature, in film or TV, we see very romanticized notions of it. But I wanted to capture like the lively community center um, nature of the place and and show that to people somehow. And ultimately, that informed the novel that I would write. Yeah, you, you said it so nicely, the welcoming everyone. And I think libraries are incredible public spaces in that they democratize knowledge and open it up to everyone. They educate, they offer accesses to cultural information, historical information, and they're common places where people can find shelter from inclement weather and and find a safe spot. Exactly. Um, 
and and this made made me think so much of how this is a um, an important novel also because how much not libraries are contested spaces these days mm, yeah and the way in which they are treated as though they're simply gateways to pornographic materials or in some way a um a place that harms children right. and i wonder what that did to your your place in the library, and then again, how this novel is in some way speaking to that uh, the treatment of libraries. Yeah, I you know a lot of the controversy that has come up. Really, I had finished my novel before a lot of that started. Um, you know, it's really been gearing up. I feel like in the last year, but. So I wasn't really influenced by a lot of that, you know, contesting of the library and of library materials, although it still happened, just not with the kind of focused frequency that's been happening lately. And it also was not really happening at my library where I work. Uh, we didn't have a lot of that. So I'm definitely, you know, fascinated by that and intrigued by it as a person and as a librarian, but it didn't inform the book very much because, you know, it just wasn't such a such a force in, in contemporary society at that point. It's happened very quickly. And yes. that makes total sense. Yes, it's it's very upsetting. When I talk about how can I help you with friends, I, I talk about it as having a, a driving, unstoppable plot that sort of gets into your bloodstream. And it operates with this structure that really helps develop the mystery by giving us both Margot and Patricia's point of view. How did you come to this dual narrator structuring and how do you use that form to build suspense and mystery? Mm, that's a great question. I originally started writing the book just from Margot's perspective. She was kind of my starting point. I usually start with a voice or a character um, and not much of an idea of plot or or setting or anything. Uh, in this case, I had Margot and I had the library. I knew those two things and I loved combining them. But as I wrote, I felt like it needed more layering and more action too um, and interaction. And Patricia was the character who really provided that for me. So, and I don't even remember, honestly, the point when I thought, oh, this is the new character. I mean, Patricia is a writer. She's a librarian. So she has a lot of me in her. So she wasn't as much of a stretch as, as Margot was. But I don't remember where, when I sat down and thought, oh, I, I want this second character to be this writer, but it turned out to work so nicely. Um, because... It certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I really enjoyed going back and forth and, and not just moving forward, but circling back to points that Margot had already experienced and revisiting them with Patricia, because what fascinates me so much is the idea of like changing perspective and how much our perspectives affect the way we see the world, the things we do, the things we think and believe. And so it was really productive to revisit scenes um, mm. with Patricia after Margot had already experienced them. 
Yeah. And I think it does this like wonderful Rashomon thing for the reader. And you're like, wait, I, I thought I knew what was going on with Margot and that patron. But now right. from Patricia's point of view, maybe I misinterpreted that. Right. Exactly. So Margot's story is in some ways a, a story of empathy gone awry. <laughs> she keeps these you know, scrapbooks of the patients whose deaths she was in, likely responsible for. And she is soothed and uplifted by their medical diagnoses, recalling the care that she provide for, provided for them. In many cases, she believes that the patients were begging her for, for help and that that help was to be released from their pain and illness. But she has invented these stories to, to cover for her desire to end life and not sustain it. Can you talk a little bit about how empathy works with Margot and also with um, Patricia and how empathy's perversion is in some mm -hmm. ways at the center of this novel? Empathy's perversion is a wonderful phrase. <laughs> Thank you for that. that <laughs> that's a gift. Yes, empathy's perversion is a beautiful way to think about Margot and the way she exists in the world. I do think that she has convinced herself of the story of, yes, she is helping people. She, she can see them in ways that even their own family can't see them. She can empathize with them and kind of save them. Um, and as you said, it's kind of thinly veiling her real desire to put them away and to enjoy, <laughs> enjoy those deaths. Enjoy them I like put them away. Put them away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to me. I, I think about empathy inside of helping and inside of caretaking, since it is such a mm -hmm. crucial component of caretaking and the kind of traditional role of women as caretakers and I think both of these women have sort of caretaking roles. I mean, Margot's is obviously as a nurse, um, but then as a librarian. Librarian, being a librarian is also being a helper and, mm. and working in the service industry. You know, and that more is, and more a, a caretaker. <laughs> absolutely, yes. We we are basically social workers without the training. Oh my goodness, it's so true. It, it's so true. So it's fascinating to me. This is really in retrospect. It's not like I had this conscious idea as I was writing it. But when I look at both Margot and Patricia, I look at the tension in their lives between, I mean, Margot really feels this empathy and this desire to help. Um, and yet, she is killing people the exact maybe opposite of being helpful and to me it reads as a kind of a kind of subversion of that mandate of women as caretakers that we have inhabited for so many years and i'm not saying i think it's a conscious one or an admirable one either <laughs> but i do think it subverts that that is she, as she's being empathetic, even inside of that, she is reversing that and turning it upside down. And so there must be this intense tension within her between like this desire to help and then this desire to do what she wants. And I think, 
you see the same thing in Patricia. She's also kind of torn. And I feel this to a, a lesser degree. She's torn between wanting to be a librarian and to like be in the public, work for the public good, and then to do what she wants, which is to write. And I often feel that kind of seesawing myself. Um, but she is, of course, her, an exaggerated case. And I think there's a lot of tension inside of her as well between these these kinds of roles. I really like that tension you're describing there between women's understanding that the culture expects of them uh, a caretaking, an extra empathy, <laughs> and their own latent desires and right. that they want in their lives. And that that right. tension is uh, obviously like exaggerated here in both yeah. cases. Right. That's a that's a for real uh, gendered contradiction, I think, yeah, for so many definitely. women. Yes. And, and sorry. And no, no, please. I was just going to add, too, that the both of them kind of try anyway to put aside their desires and their ambitions. And the results are not good. <laughs> to say the least. To say the least. I, I was thinking as you were saying this that the not the history of the novel is a history about women in in empathy and mm -hmm. both the idea that we're supposed to read stories of women who grow their empathetic spirits, but mm -hmm. it's also you know women were the primary readers of novels in their early uh, early days, and that it was and still we talk about the novel as a, a, a force for developing empathy. I'm wondering if you think that bad women characters, if we want to call them that, <laughs> can be sources of development of empathy and sympathy for the reader. Mm, that's interesting. I think, I mean, what I hope is, and I, I like bad women. I like that a lot more than unlikable women, which is something oh, I yeah. hear a lot about oh. my characters. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. I would not, they're, I like them. They're just badly behaved. <laughs> they're very badly behaved, but yes, I like them too. But what I hope anyway, is that when readers come to these characters, they see them as human and maybe they can empathize at least on a human level of, you know, humans are complicated creatures or characters. Um, and these are, these are complicated people. And so I would like not for them to empathize necessarily with their actions or their, their behavior, but definitely see them as complicated the way real people are. I'm not interested in creating you know, um, I don't know, friends for readers. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like that very much. Patricia's obsession with Margot and her desire for a muse to fuel her creativity puts How Can I Help You in a lineage of books about literary obsessions. Mona Awad's Bunny comes to mind mm -hmm. as, as Mona is one of your nice blurbs on, mm -hmm. the, on the back there. Yeah. An example of the muse's uh, bad bad creations and bad behaviors, as is Donna Tartt's The Secret History. Do you see your novel as in conversation with a tradition of books about bad literary inspiration? Oh, I hope so. That's wonderful <laughs> to think about. <laughs> yes, because I see, even though it did not start this way, I do see that as the heart of the book in many ways. 
as this, for me, you know, as I said before, Margot was the starting point for the book. And I loved writing her and being in her head. Patricia at the start was kind of a foil. But as she progressed, as the writing progressed, I became much more interested in Patricia's journey, uh, maybe in part because she really has a kind of arc, you know, she goes through changes, but also because I could delve into what it means to be inspired and, and what it means for a writer to be inspired by things that maybe she shouldn't be inspired by. Mm. Troubling things. Yeah, troubling things. And that sort of gets us to the sort of meta of, of you know, being a writer and finding inspirations <laughs> in all time kinds of things. Do you ever sort of tamp yourself down from, from finding things uh, inspiring and then making them into art? Or are you sort of open to uh, every kind of inspiration? I'm pretty open. <laughs> I am pretty open to all kinds of inspiration, but I do I do see the book as a kind of in investigation, I guess, self-investigation of the quandary of, okay, I'm writing a book about this woman who's inspired by a serial killer. And this book was in part inspired by the story of a serial killer. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> I didn't know if, if you knew that. Can you say, can you say more oh, yes, about that? Yes, yes. Well, really, it started when I, so in addition to my, you know, library work inspiring me, separately, I had heard a podcast. Do you know the podcast Criminal? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, it's a one, I think it's really the best true crime podcast. It's a very smart um, very socially aware and, oh, it's really well done. So I highly recommend. Oh, I will. I will. Just called for sure. Criminal. Yes. And one of the early episodes, I love the, the early episodes. And one of the early episodes is about a woman named Jane Toppin, who was called Jolly Jane. And she was a nurse in the 1800s. And she was cheerful and efficient and people liked her, her patients and colleagues liked her, and she was killing her patients pretty steadily. And she, in the way that Margot does, where she injected them, I think, with morphine and atropine, and she would climb on top of them and watch them die in a state of ecstasy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So she really instantly fascinated me for a couple of reasons. One, you know, she's a female serial killer. Mm -hmm. They're very rare. Very rare, yeah. Very rare. And two, because I don't think I've ever heard of a female serial killer who did was not explained away, that her actions were not explained away with motives like, I don't know, greed or revenge or anger. But Really, she derived pleasure from killing. And I've only, only seen or heard that ascribed to male ser serial killers before mm. her. So I thought she was really fascinating. And she kind of stuck in my brain. And when I started writing a new book, I keep a file of, you know, stories that have interested me. And just the idea of bringing her to the library. And instead of being caught, which the real Jane Toppin was, 
she escapes into this new life and it's you know contemporary times so she's it's totally different she's she's loosely inspired by Jane Toppin but um, I just loved the idea of bringing her to the library and see what happens I uh, now I have this better sense of when she's Jane and she is described I think as jolly or or at least quite yes, uh you know happy uh-huh. around the the hospital so that gives me such a a wonderful background <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that uh, episode yeah, and you're right, wonderful yeah you're right that serial killers who are men are are often treated as absolute sociopaths yeah and that women have a there is a an unearthed motivation that is out of uh being scorned or being Mm -hmm. you know the the subject of some other kind of scandal but to be a pure sociopath that seems in the world of of male serial killers yes it does and i should also say that my margot jane was also inspired partly by charles cullen um who was the nurse who's who's featured in The Good Nurse. And he was a killer in New Jersey, actually. He started in New Jersey. But I kind of stole from his story the fact that the hospitals kept, they knew what was happening, and they simply moved him from hospital to hospital. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So he was able to kill probably hundreds of patients they don't really know. But it's, yes, it's chilling. And so I stole that little piece and had Margot have have that in her background about being moved from hospital to hospital. This is um, sure making me not want to have to visit the (laughs) hospital. And that makes me think of the ways in which what you've engaged part of the, the sort of like fear and and kind of our obsession in this story is that a space like a hospital or, you know, anything having to do with medicine is a place of the kind of like last refuge of goodness Mm -hmm. in a society. People will put in the effort to, to do the best for you. And so when that's violated, it gets an extra kind of violation (laughs) on top of it, a breaking of the Hippocratic oath and all these other things that go into it. And I, and I'm wondering whether you were thinking about that particular kind of violation when you were writing this. I was a little bit, I'm someone who very weirdly probably enjoys hospitals. So that (laughs) makes you the one. (laughs) I'm the one. Yes. I am the one who enjoys. You enjoy the Jello pack- packets that you <laughs> uh, get. All of it. I especially enjoy the anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> I love the moment of going under with oh, anesthesia. Wow. <laughs> I really like having. I, I have not had that many serious procedures, but when I have procedures done, I love the feeling of putting myself into other people's hands and trusting them. And I feel really safe and like warm and, you know, (laughs) so it's kind of, I think part of it is exploring the fear of, yes, that that trust being violated feels very terrible to me. And it is terrible. Um, I also, my mother died of colon cancer when I was in my late teens. So I spent a lot of time in hospitals. And so I think a lot of that seeped into the book without my really thinking about it. 
Um, but I definitely have spent a lot of time and have had mixed feelings about hospitals. I've had, like I said, the warm, fuzzy feelings I get when I have a procedure done and I feel safe. Hmm. But I remember when my mother was sick, there, there was most of her caretakers were amazing, the nurses and doctors. But I just remember one who disturbed me a little. She was a bit possessive of my mother and, and it freaked me out. Uh, not because I really think she was doing anything wrong, but it it's just, it's strange. That was the kind of dark side of like putting someone you love in strangers' hands. So mm-hmm. I think unconsciously some of that came out. And I did use some of that in Patricia's backstory as well. Ah, fascinating. So Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle is the great intertext of this mm-hmm. novel. Jackson's novel gives us a narrator who has done terrible, brutal, possibly evil things, but she entrances us nonetheless. It's a novel that is an obsession for for Margot and Patricia. How do you see it operating in the tension of the plot? But is it um, and is it a nod to the ways in which we love literature that makes us culpable in rooting for wrongdoers? Yes, I love that. I love that description. I love literature that makes us feel feel that, um, as you can probably guess. And I do see that in in the Jack in Jackson's novel. It's funny. I put the novel. I put Shirley Jackson's novel into mine almost accidentally. Oh, I yes, I was having a hard time finding a book that I I wanted to, really wanted to read while I was writing the book and I had cycled through a few novels and then I saw hers on my bookshelf and I've read it already but I decided to reread it and I did and it was just so perfect and was exactly what I wanted and I started to think oh this could have some really productive overlaps in the book and I thought I am going to stick it in the in the novel mm. and have Margot fall in love with it which you know she's not a reader so it was kind of fun to to transform her into a reader with this particular book which as you said has features a narrator who may or may not have done something terrible like Margot herself and I do think that I hope that my novel also does this, but I know that Jackson's novels do in making us feel kind of guilty ourselves for mm-hmm. for enjoying and relating to or even maybe empathizing with bad characters. So, yes, I love the idea of the books interacting in that way. You have a couple of other books that you give nods to, and I was wondering, Mm. was it fun to think about what books that you maybe see when you're in in the library or always sort of come back to as a reader and and pick them and have them have a little sort of secret place in the the novel? Yes, it was very fun. The, The novels that are mentioned when she is trying to read a little earlier... Those, I literally went to the V's, I think, in the <laughs> fiction section of our library and looked at 
I think I took a picture actually of the shelf and and worked with those. And then one of them, which was uh, Laura Vandenberg's Find Me, happened to have this awesome first line that worked so well with Margot's story that I that I decided to put it in there. You, you mentioned uh, J.M. Kutsea and some yes, other ones. Were there right. other were there other uh, books that you were you know that you hid in there for maybe a little oh bit gosh. of elusive meaning? Oh my gosh, I I don't think so. I think those were the main ones. Okay, and well, with the Jackson, of course. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a that's a book I return to probably every like five or six years. Even if I don't really? read the whole thing, I'll, you know, I'll read a bit of it. Yes. And it, it just, it's very unusual. It's so it really unique. The, the really voice, is. the ambiance, the mood. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it's it extraordinary. Really yes. And she's, I'm glad that she has had a, that Jackson has had another rebirth as one of, our, uh, one of our greats. I am too. For for Margot, being a, a nurse was kind of the ultimate ordering structure for what she perceives as a vulgarly disordered world. Mm. And the library promises some of that same ordering. You have cataloging every book in its right place, some sense of enforced quiet. But when she discover what she discovers is that because it's a public space that includes everyone, that aspect of it disrupts the order. Patrons are looking at porn on computers and speaking too loudly and leaving books all over the place and abusing the books. And libraries are indeed this balance between chaos and order. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. I think Margot enjoys that aspect of it, as we know, with Friday Guy, the, the man who looks at porn. Yeah. She, I think that the chaos that comes with the library setting, and it probably came a bit with hospital as well, allows her to exercise her power. You know, I mean, she exercised it a lot more lethally inside of the hospital, but the library she's at least able to get a taste of that and kind of she seems to like putting things in order and keeping them in order. So including the patrons that she kind of keeps in control, um, either by helping them with something or by, you know, threatening them a bit. So I think it actually provides her with the tool that she needs right at that moment in her life to suppress her urges it gives her a little bit of a release valve i mm. feel like mm -hmm. um, that is not quite as satisfying to her as killing but is it's better than nothing i i wonder if you see it at all the library space as a microcosm of civil society and that mm -hmm. we could even think of margot as sort of like the the dictator of the <laughs> of the civil society, I and that, the, that and that the problem is always that you need order to function, mm -hmm. but that having you know groups of people interact together and come into spaces together makes disorder, and you're you're balancing those. Do, yeah. Does it work at all as as civil society? And Margot wants to be the iron fist. 
love that. I love that reading of it. I think it does work. I think it does work. And she is the dictator herself is problematic because she too can can go out, lose control. Mm -hmm. And if she loses control, then, you know, it's total chaos. But I I do love that. It is a microcosm of, of society at large. I see that every Every day that I'm at work. (laughs) (laughs) Sure you do. There was a stand-up comedian I saw recently who said that all library public computers should just be set to porn (laughs) as the default. And that way it saved the patrons time to having to find it up. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great idea. It's funny. I had a friend write text me recently who had read the novel a little a while ago and he said you know when i read your book i didn't tell you this but i thought it was a little unrealistic that there would be this guy looking at porn on a public computer and his lost a lot they, they are not at the library <laughs> no they're not along with his text he sent two pictures that he'd just taken of his library of a man looking at porn <laughs> he said i'm very sorry <laughs> to have doubted you oh hilarious I yeah know. No, that's that that is, seemed as real as anything absolutely <laughs> absolutely so whoever put together your cover photo for the hardcover is a genius. And yeah. it's that like card catalog uh, card on fire is just, I mean, it resonates with the fires that Margot's setting yes. outside. And it resonates with just like how people's lives can suddenly sort of seemingly, you know, go, go up in flames. And, and I'm wondering how it came to be and, and if you had any say over it. Oh, that's a great question. Yes, that is from Eric Fuentesia, who works at Putnam Books, and he nailed it. It is such a perfect cover. Um, In the early stages, my editor asked me to put together a file, a document of covers that I loved and, and another one of covers that I didn't love. And so that was so much fun because I love cover art. And so I collected, yeah, gosh, I collected a bunch and I kind of talked about what I wanted. You know, I I did not want women on the cover. Mm. Um, I want say say why, say why. I just, I wanted something more abstract. So I just feel like that a lot of times women's fiction gets women on the cover and I don't love it. Mm-hmm. My first book looker, I the hardcover, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it there it's a woman's face and it's scratched out with lipstick. Oh. And I loved that cover so much, but I just wanted to have it be abstract uh but to kind of resonate with different elements in the novel and so I gave them that and it was literally the first draft they came back with. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. that never happens. No, that never happens. I mean, we asked for things to be moved around a bit, the the blurb or something, but very little was changed. So it was it was a really seamless process. And I'm yeah. very happy with it. Well, and, and I just I can always tell from the cover, like, you know, if the artist or the design team really knows the book 
And I feel yes. like this is a knowing couple. I think so. Yes, I think so, too. Laura, before I let you go, I would love to know if you have any recommendations for my listeners of things you've been reading recently and that you might like to tell us about. Oh, absolutely. I um, very recently I read a novel called A Flaw in the Design by Nathan Oates. It is a psychological thriller about a man who has taken in his nephew who has lost his parents and he has a lot of reservations about this nephew he knows things about him and so they take him into his the family and things happen and it's fascinating it's very patricia highsmith area very smartly done filled with observations about I don't know, family life, middle age, teaching. I think you would really enjoy it, actually. Um, I think I would. (laughs) And uh, one that I read a little while ago that has stayed with me for so many weeks and maybe months now is Mariana Enriquez's Our Share of Night. Um, It's just a fabulous horror novel. It's, It's a huge book. I I could have read it for much longer than I did. And it was one of those books that blends the real and the supernatural so flawlessly and convincingly. I felt like I had lived it myself. Uh, um, I love that book. Incredible. And I feel like it, it, one of the things, one of the kinds of horror stories I like are when horrible political moments, huntas or dictatorships or something, yes. can a form of darkness, of evil magic and monsters and yes. things like that. And this book really does that so well. It really does. It really does. And the last one I'll mention is Tara's story. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that by Her- Hilary Leichter. She was a recent guest. Oh, she was. Okay, yeah. I'll have to listen to that. I, I adored that book. It was so wonderful. The use of fantasy in this beautiful, meaningful way. I was just completely, you know, enraptured by it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I've been saying to people that for number of pages to pounds of like imaginative punch, that yeah. novel is is a winner. <laughs> totally. It is. It really is. And it felt so joyful to read too. Um, even though there's it, a lot yeah. of heavy heaviness that it that it embraces. I agree. And I'm gonna grab that Nathan Oates because that's yes, you should. That like it's gonna um really be exciting. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Well I I've already said how much I love How Can I Help You, but if people haven't read it already, you have to. Uh, It just is going to uh, captivate you for uh, the, you you could read it in in an afternoon and it will devastate you for many days afterwards. But I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk, Laura. Me too. I'm so glad. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Laura Sims for coming on the show to talk about her Seat of Your Pants blockbuster, How Can I Help You? You can find links to purchase How Can I Help You and all of Laura's recommended books at the website burnedbybooks.com. 
There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>